Welcome to another episode of HUGE, where we make sense of complicated policy debates in Washington. I'm Kristen Silverberg, and today we are joined by two experts on the U.S. budget process, Steve McMillan, a partner at U.S. Policy Metrics and former Deputy Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, and J.D. Foster, Chief Economist at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, also formerly of OMB. Before we get started, I want to make clear to listeners that there are two budget debates underway in Congress, one for FY17 and one for FY18. A provision in the FY17 budget resolution triggered the ongoing debate in Congress over the repeal of Obamacare, and we'll say more about that later. But we will spend most of today talking about the FY18 budget and appropriations process, which really kicks off later this week when the President is expected to send his so-called skinny budget to Congress. So, J.D., why are we calling it a skinny budget? What do we mean by that? Well, usually uh, when a president introduces uh, a budget submission, they've been in office for a while, and they have a full array of policies and uh, a lot of text to describe what they want to see in public policy, and that produces a very large document, the regular-sized budget. Uh, obviously, President Trump's only been in office for a little while. His proposals aren't as detailed. Uh, they can't all be scored to the same extent. So it is more a thematic budget. It expresses a few basic things that the president wants to get done, uh, but uh, there hasn't been time for the full budget, and he doesn't have, uh, frankly, quite the, the detail of things to lay out in the budget. He'll still have uh, economic assumptions, we presume. We'll still have basic uh, descriptions of how federal spending uh, by, in detail and uh, revenues will lay out in the future, uh, but there won't be the same volume of content because President, frankly, hasn't had time to deliver, uh, develop that much. So, Steve, walk us through what happens once the skinny budget is released. Well, the there will be a uh, press rollout, public relations rollout that occurs over the course of a couple of days. Normally, you would have the OMB director testifying before Congress uh, sometime next week when the uh, Congress has had a chance to absorb some of the detail in there. Um, at that point, Congress then will break down the budget into some of the individual component agencies, examine those proposals in more detail. And what they're setting up here ultimately is the uh, annual appropriations process that will kick into gear um, most seriously probably about May and then finish sometime in the October to December time frame. A complication here is that we're still working on last year's budget. The annual spending bills for 2017, which started last October 1st, still are only passed in a temporary form. So they have until the end of April in Congress to finish that process, and then they will be able to turn to a real thorough examination and execution on the President's proposals for 2018. And just to make it even more complicated, I want to ask you about one technical issue. Some budget resolutions include something called reconciliation instructions. And in fact, the FY17 budget resolution included reconciliation instructions on Obamacare. Um, this is going to become important, I think, in our discussion later this morning. So can you explain what are reconciliation instructions? Sure. What the reconciliation process is really designed to overcome is the filibuster in the Senate. So if there is something important enough 
to, for our country to accomplish, which is to accomplish its fiscal goals, get them put into law, Congress created a process that allows it to overcome the normal supermajority requirement of the filibuster. So first, Congress has to agree on an overall budget blueprint so they can see what all the moving pieces are intended to be. And then if Congress chooses, they don't have to do this every year, but if they choose, they can require that some portion of the mandatory spending, the revenue, and the uh, debt targets of the budget resolution can be exempt from the filibuster, and that's what a reconciliation bill is. So for the 17 budget resolution, they created a reconciliation process to begin the process of repealing and replacing Obamacare. There's speculation that they may use reconciliation in the FY18 budget later this year. Um, the most common assumption is that they would try to accomplish tax reform through that reconciliation bill. But there may be a variety of other spending measures they try to include there as well, whether it's uh, additional health care measures, um, there are portions of Dodd-Frank financial reform that could be attacked in reconciliation, things of that nature, welfare reform, you name it. So normally it would take 60 votes in the Senate for any of these things, and reconciliation allows you to get it through the Senate with the 50. Yes, and majority. one limitation of the reconciliation process, again, at the risk of over, overly complicating things, because it's uh, intruding on the traditional right of senators to filibuster, there's limitations to what you can include in a reconciliation bill. And the most uh, important restriction is, is enshrined in something called the Byrd Rule, named after a former senator. And that says for a provision to be included in a reconciliation bill, its primary purpose has to be budgetary. That there's policy involved, of course, but it has to be in there to move budget numbers. And if you're just sticking in policy, then that's considered uh, a violation of the process and that provision can be removed. That's part of why we're seeing such uh, uh, difficulty among Republicans in Congress right now, because if you simply said, let's repeal Obamacare, that's not a purely budgetary act and therefore you can't do that in reconciliation. So, and we, we won't get into this, but there's a person, a Senate parliamentarian, whose job it is to decide whether some particular provision meets the terms of the bird rule or is outside the bird rule and so it's possible that later this year we'll be reading a lot about about that person's That's judgments. That's correct. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. She's been there I think at least 20 years now, served under uh, a couple of other venerable parliamentarians and uh, you know there there are some specific rules written in law about how that works but a lot of the Senate is based on precedent and um, the parliamentarian has a significant role in uh, both interpreting previous precedent and when a new set of facts is presented to the parliamentarian, figuring out what the right way is to read, read the past. Let's go back to President Trump's skinny budget for FY18. Steve, what are the key issues you'll be looking for in that budget? Well, the first question is, this, this, this skinny budget is being driven by the president's desire to fulfill a campaign promise to increase defense spending dramatically. So the uh, rumors, the leaks uh, so far have suggested that the president will be requesting a $54 billion 
increase in the defense budget relative to the previous year. That's somewhere on the order of 10%. The second question then is how do you finance that defense increase? And uh, in the past, uh, Congress has used a, uh, the category of so-called war spending as a gimmick to get around overall spending caps. So you, you take legitimate costs of conducting overseas military operations, you add those on top of the budget, you call it an emergency, but then while you're at it, you say, you know, the people over there fighting, they were flying airplanes. Let's buy some airplanes with some more money. Let's uh, buy some gasoline with that war money. Let's buy some of these other consumables and, and uh, replace equipment that's worn out overseas. Let's cover a portion of the salaries and benefits of the people over there and call it an extraordinary war cost. So uh, there could be some of that. Uh, the other alternative would just be to simply engage in straightforward deficit financing, to say we know that there is a cap on defense spending, but we want that cap to be higher. And there are several proponents of higher defense spending in Congress who said that's the honest way to budget, let's just do that. A couple of other ways that uh, you could work at it is finding either mandatory and revenue offsets which is what was done in 2013 and 2015 by uh, Speaker Paul Ryan and, and others. Or you could find cuts on the non-defense discretionary side, and it's this latter category is that is where we understand the President is going to go, to impose approximately 10% across the board cuts over all of the annually appropriated non-defense categories. And it sounds like they're looking for some uh, particularly tough cuts from the State Department and EPA. That's correct. So that 10% cut is going to be is not going to be allocated uh, evenly across everyone. There are targets, uh, political targets, agencies that are not as popular in conservative circles. Certainly, the conservative coalition that elected Trump uh, is not a fan of EPA, is not a fan of foreign assistance, and so you're going to see disproportionately large cuts proposed, most likely in agencies like AID, EPA. Uh, rumors last week that uh, housing subsidies would be cut approximately 14 percent, for example. And that will probably protect, be, those funds will probably be used to protect increases in places that um, conservatives are, are less unhappy with, such as transportation, uh, homeland security, Justice Department, things of that nature. Now, $54 billion sounds like a lot, but it's worth pointing out that the U.S. government has been operating under a so-called sequester, which involves some very dramatic cuts to defense and non-defense spending um, during the Obama administration. And so for some of the particularly hawks on the Hill, $54 billion is actually too small. They were looking for larger increases on the defense side. Can you just say a word about the, the sequester? Sure, just a, a little bit of history. Back in 2011, President Obama and Speaker Boehner, Senator McConnell, Vice President Biden came up with the, a bipartisan budget act, a, an agreement to try to achieve a couple trillion dollars worth of deficit reduction. And the means of doing that was primarily to place caps and reduce the growth in discretionary spending. Now, they gave themselves an option of coming up with some portion of the total deficit reduction through mandatory and revenue changes. And they created a super committee 
of uh, appointed members of Congress to try to come up with those cuts. Uh, the supercommittee was not able to come to an agreement. As a result, a further approximately $100 billion per year was cut out of the annual discretionary budget, allocated half to defense, half to non-defense. So one could argue that if the original caps were correct, that this $54 billion that President Trump is proposing is simply getting us back to where we were intended to be back in 2011 for defense. Uh, defenders of non-defense spending would say we're doubling down on the cuts that um, should not have been imposed in the first place and making things even harder than they would otherwise be. Uh, you know, the world has changed since 2011, um, and exactly what the right number def for defense is, is is certainly a matter of opinion. But yes, there will be people in Congress not only staunchly defending the President's proposed $54 billion increase, but perhaps even trying to add to it. So if this is right, if the President's skinny budget comes out with uh, something like a $54 billion increase offset by cuts on the non-defense side, particularly focused on things like foreign aid or EPA, how is Congress likely to respond to that? What I think the Trump administration is going to try to do is bind themselves as long as they can and try to bind Congress to some sort of overall budgetary goal, and then we fight over how to get there. And the President's proposing, most likely going to propose a lot of things that Congress is going to be unable to pass. Question is, do they come up with alternative cuts of their own, or do they come up with uh, a different overall spending target? So that same internal debate, that same choice that I discussed before, do you give defense all this money? If so, do you use a war gimmick again? Do you look for mandatory and revenue offsets, as Congress did in 2013 and 2015? Um, or do you find some different set of non-defense cuts? Uh, that's the debate Congress is going to have to go through over the next uh, couple of months. Some people are speculating that even fiscal conservatives on the Hill will feel less committed on those issues now that the party is led by a president who's perceived to be less of a deficit hawk. Is that your sense, or Congress, is there still a core set of fiscal conservatives who are strongly committed to, to tight budgeting? Well, the, the challenge is when you're passing a lot of these budget bills, the atmosphere in Congress has gotten increasingly partisan uh, over the last decade or two which means that for any budget legislation of consequence, the majority has to figure out how to find the votes all by themselves. So if you're trying to pass a budget in the House, every Democrat is going to vote no, regardless of what the details are, because it's the Republicans' budget, it's their problem. So it only takes uh, a couple dozen, three dozen members to insist that I have to have a path to a balanced budget in 10 years, uh, to prevent you from adopting a budget. On the same, by the same token, if you have a couple dozen members, Republicans, who say these cuts that are being proposed on non-defense are uh, unacceptable, I'm not voting for that budget, the leadership finds itself in this bind. Where do I find 218 House votes in order to pass my budget? And uh, there are, you know, despite the fact that we have a president right now who is uh, who does not seem to be afraid of deficit spending, there is still a substantial core 
within the Republicans in the House in particular who want to see a balanced budget. So it's, it's going to be another challenge like we're seeing on Obamacare this week where the Republicans aren't quite sure how to find the votes. So, J.D., what else will you be looking for in terms of uh, budget proposals from the White House? Well, the one thing we would like to be seeing is some uh, direction towards entitlement reform, especially Social Security and Medicare. Uh, the president has said during campaign he doesn't really want to touch those programs, but on the other hand, we know that within a fairly short period of time, 10, 15 years or so from now, um, Social Security will, the trust fund will run dry. We know the Medicare Part A trust fund will run dry. So we're going to be reforming these programs. Um, it would be better if we started sooner rather than later. That would be a big thing we're looking for. Uh, the second, um, as uh, Steve mentioned, the second budget blueprint um, is expected to have reconciliation instructions um, dedicated in large part towards uh, tax reform. Uh, we're really looking forward to having the president be a little bit more detailed as to what he thinks tax reform should look like. Uh, we have the House Blueprint, uh, which is um, uh, developing in the House. Um, fairly uh, solid document, but it's going to take some work. Um, but we, and we have proposals that the President uh, referenced during the campaign, but not much since then. And uh, we, for the process to move forward, the President has to gauge in this area. Um, and so we're looking forward to uh, his, his, his additional thoughts on what tax reform should look like and then how that might be reflected in a budget resolution because the reconciliation instructions will in part define the extent to which tax reform is going to be neutral and on what basis, whether it will be on a classic static basis or on a dynamic basis or is it allowed to be a tax cut. Um, that, in fact, will have to be specified in part in the reconciliation instructions. As we said earlier, Congress is using reconciliation to try to pass repeal and replace of Obamacare. And you just mentioned that they'd also like to use reconciliation in FY18 for tax reform. What happens if they have not complete, successfully completed the Obamacare effort? Well, it does have to be one than the other because you can only have one operational set of reconciliation instructions. So the reconciliation instructions associated with the 2017 uh, budget resolution uh, are the uh, instructions of record, if you will, until you meet those instructions, which would be done through Obamacare repeal and replace. So in terms of timing the sequence, first you needed the resolution, then you need the legislation for Obamacare repeal and replace, and you really can't take up the 2018 uh, budget uh, with its associated reconciliation instructions until Obamacare is done or you're just gonna have to repeat Obamacare reconciliation in the 2018 budget. And so that's part of the reason they're under such a pressure to get Obamacare repeal and replace done so quickly is that not only resolves a major issue and checks a, a huge policy box for President uh, Obama and the congressional Republicans, but it then also begins to clear the path and the calendar for moving forward on the rest of the budget. So to be clear, if they can't pass uh, Obamacare repeal and replace under the reconciliation debate as part of FY17, that could have big implications for tax reform. Right. Well, it does for tax reform if you think that tax reform is going to happen between now and the end of 2018. Um, that's sort of presumed in those reconciliation instructions. On the other hand, if you think that tax reform might actually take a bit longer than that, so that might be reconciliation instructions in the 2019 uh, budget resolution, uh, then it's not that big of a problem. Uh, it really depends on 
um, how serious do you think the probabilities are that you could actually do um, a comprehensive or some kind of major tax reform uh, before the end of 2018? One White House policy priority we heard the President reiterate during his address to Congress was infrastructure, although I'll note that he hedged his language a bit, so instead of calling for a trillion dollar package on infrastructure, he called for a package that would produce a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, which sounds a lot like they're counting on a big private sector contribution to that. And I'm wondering, we've read that infrastructure may come out in the FY19 budget, so may be deferred. Do either of you have expectations about where the White House will head on that and what congressional response would be? Well, they don't want to defer it. This is um, a high priority for the economy uh, and for the president. The trillion dollars is sort of a, a what do you mean by that number? Uh, is it really a trillion dollars of additional federal spending? Over what period? Is it a total of a trillion dollars of federal spending? Because we already have a lot of infrastructure spending. Uh, does it include private uh, contributions? Uh, many of the programs, especially in the transportation area, are, are partnerships between the federal and state government, 25% you know, match. So if the federal government spends $3 and the states spend a dollar, is the state's dollar contributing to that trillion dollars? Um, the vagueness here is very useful. Uh, it facilitates getting a bill done, but it's still going to be very difficult, uh, in part because it's uh, very large and very political, and in part because infrastructure means more than bridges and roads. Uh, there's water infrastructure, there's pipeline infrastructure, and there are ports, so the definition of what you mean by infrastructure then starts getting very large, which is helpful and conducive to a better bill, I think. On uh, the other hand, you're bringing more players into the discussion, and there comes a point where having so many players participating, so many uh, constituent parts, might itself make passage of a bill more difficult. But I, I think they are quite dedicated in an intent on getting something done uh, well before the 2019 budget starts uh, being debated and considering including infrastructure as part of a reconciliation in that framework. Just two examples of how the definition of infrastructure is expanding to meet this trillion dollar total. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's gone far beyond just transportation infrastructure and when you think about uh, what private companies spend on electrical transmission and distribution infrastructure, it seems likely that that's something that's going to count towards the total. Uh, the expansion of broadband uh, rollout of whether mobile or wired broadband seems to be something they have in mind. But there was even a suggestion uh, late last week that uh, perhaps housing could be considered part of infrastructure to compensate for that 14% cut they think uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is in for. To make things more complicated, later this week the United States will hit the legal limit on how much debt it can hold, the so-called debt ceiling. The Treasury Department can use some accounting procedures to fund accessional payments until sometime this summer or fall, but then Congress has to debate whether to increase the debt ceiling. At this point, J.D., how do you expect this to play out? Well, the first thing is even though the debt suspension expires uh, later this week, we probably don't actually have to have congressional action until mid to late summer or even early fall, depending on the pattern of tax receipts. In one sense, this was extraordinarily well-timed. April, as one would expect, is a particularly good uh, month for federal receipts. Uh, and so you have a surge of federal receipts uh, in April, another one in June, 
uh, not as large, but a, a significant net plus. Um, and then you combine those with Treasury's extraordinary measures, and you end up sometimes so summer or fall. So they have more time, and they will, if passed as any indicator, they will fritter most of that away and uh, take um, not a lot of action in the intervening period. Uh, we have a real problem here. Uh, when I look at the future of the U.S. economy and how we're going to fare in 2017 and 18, the, one of the three huge threats, great threats that this economy faces in the near term is whether or not this president and the Congress can address the debt limit in, in a reasonable fashion, in a timely fashion. Uh, if they don't, the consequences could be severe. We don't really know because we've never done this before, but it's uh, sort of the thing I've never jumped off a cliff either, but I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a rough landing. Um, this is much the same. Uh, we have a, a president who's not gone through this before. We don't have a lot of clarity on what he um, uh, thinks on the issue of raising the debt limit. Uh, we have a budget director who had, was seemed a little um, so we, uh, neutral on a topic. He was going to present the facts to the president. But most importantly, I think we have a Republican, Republican Congress that's going to be asked to raise the debt limit. They're going to find this extremely unpalatable. Uh, the higher debt limit is assumed in the budget that they passed earlier this year. So it's not like they didn't know it was coming. Their budget anticipated there would be additional federal debt. Uh, the FY 2018 budget resolution will presume significant additional debt over the next year and the next 10 years. So it's not a surprise, and yet doing it, raising the debt limit is an extraordinarily heavy lift. Uh, they're not going to get any help from the other side, the Democrats, in this vote, because when you're, uh, when you're in control, you own this issue. You don't get help from the other side. So this is going to be quite a political strain, but it's one that they simply have to find a way to get done, maybe in the context of um, some budget process to uh, reforms to suggest that, uh, well, we have to do it now because we didn't have a chance to do otherwise but we're going to put in place some budget reforms so that we don't have to do this as much in the future. There's a lot of face-saving uh, exercises you can go through. At the end of the day, they simply have to suspend or raise the debt limit uh, for an extended period, uh, or they're going to wreak great havoc in U.S. and global financial markets. Earlier, J.D. mentioned this question about entitlement reform and whether the Trump administration would propose anything on the mandatory spending side. There's some speculation that entitlement reform will come up in the context of the debt ceiling. Steve, can you say something about that? The one opportunity, perhaps, and I don't give it a very high probability, is in the context of the debt ceiling. The Republican Congress will have a hard time collecting the votes to pass that. Uh, when we get to the fall. And traditionally, one of the conditions Republicans have put on passage of the debt ceiling is some type of change to the spending path in order to address the underlying causes of the debt increase. The challenge this year is you've got a president who's ruled out major entitlement changes. And so using that as a condition to pass the debt ceiling doesn't seem to be a likely scenario, but that's the one possibility I could see for that happening this year. And more broadly, what's the impact of the FY18 debate on the U.S. economy? When you do growth projections for the chamber, what are the things you're particularly focused on in terms of the budget? The, the most important thing that I focus on, because we're not so concerned about composition uh, of GDP, uh, composition of the economy, 
If we were, they would be much more focused on whether there's a significant increase in defense spending. Um, and would, we kind of know the profile of the extent of deficit finance uh, for the year, whether it's 500, 600, or 700 billion, does not move a tenth of point in the GDP forecast. So those aren't the issues that concern us. What concerns us is we look for the areas where a disruption in the normal order of events, and that's most particularly the debt ceilings I was talking about, um, might not be attended to properly. And where you have a government shutdown that would be extended, that would concern us, but most especially the debt limit. Otherwise, um, federal policy for the most part is enough of a uh, steady-as-she-goes proposition in terms of the overall economy, U.S. and global, that um, I don't uh, tend to pull those factors very much into our forecast. The U.S. economy carries its own momentum, and um, the federal government, um, under normal circumstances, at most nudges it a little bit plus or minus. Well, that's very interesting and very complicated, so thank you both for joining. Okay, thank you.